Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, everyone. I am Thomas Degaregedis, analyst at the Mercator Institute for China Studies. Today, I am joined by the British Tory MP and current chair of Britain's Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom Tugendhat. Before entering politics, Tom served for many years as a territorial army officer in the British Army. He is half French and voted Remain in the UK's EU referendum. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tom. A few weeks ago, at the height of the coronavirus crisis in Britain, a group of eight Tory MPs and yourself decided to form the China Research Group, or CRG, to, I quote, promote debate and fresh thinking about how Britain should respond to the rise of China. Could you tell us briefly about the purpose and goals of this new grouping, including who its members are, how it's funded, and also if it has any specific political line? Sure. Well, at the moment, um, the purpose of the grouping is pretty simple, which is to help people understand better a very important international partner and rival, uh, China. If you were to ask many Conservative MPs to name the President of the United States or the Foreign Minister of the United States, I would guess that most people could do that relatively easily. The same is probably true of many European countries. But if you were to ask the same question about China, my guess is that most Conservative MPs would struggle beyond the name of the president. Mm. Now, this is, of course, hugely important because the policies being made by Chinese officials today are having a very important effect on the UK. The speeches that they give are directing investment and resource around the world and changing our own uh, foreign policy and our own aid policy and our own defence policy. And they're having a huge impact even here at home. So understanding China is not a question of being in favour or against any particular policy. It's simply understanding what we're dealing with. And that's why we set up uh, the CRG. Now, the CRG is uh, it's, it's a conservative group in the sense that, uh, for various uh, parliamentary reasons, it's just easier to set up um, single-party groups, and so that's what we've done. Um, but actually, we're sharing uh, freely with anybody, uh, with any uh, other party as well. And, uh, and so what we're doing is we're, we're beginning to, I hope, help inform a debate so that people can make uh, better decisions on the implications for our trade policy, our defence policy, our economic policy, uh, based on the facts and what's actually happening rather than knee-jerk reactions. What we do is we operate as a sort of a network. So we, we, we're just calling on uh, uh, help from other research houses and, and, uh, and getting a lot of support. So. Um, so the CRG keeps on, on being likened to the influential anti-EU ERG group. And um, I'm, guessing, I'm guessing that the closeness in names was intentional. So having heard some of your CRG colleagues uh, speak, I would say, quite uh, hawkishly about uh, China in recent weeks, how anti the Chinese government rather than anti-China uh, is the CRG? Well, I think you'll find that there are mixed views on uh, the CRG. So uh, some of our members are rather more uh, are rather more hawkish, and some are rather less. Uh, and that's the nature of these organisations. This is not a you know this is not a, a dictatorial organisation. We, we we simply seek to help people be informed, not to tell them what to think. And and the reality is that the 
the concerns that are most raised are to do with the nature of uh, the Communist Party of China rather than the nature of China. You know, many of us, me in particular perhaps, have spoken uh, extremely praising of Taiwan, for example, uh, a Chinese society, uh, but a democratic one. It certainly isn't anti-Chinese to point out the, uh, the problems of communist tyranny. If I understand correctly, so the uh, CRG doesn't have a specific political line, does it? Because at the moment, I think that it's there are only Tory, Tory MPs that are part of it, right? Well, as I say, it's uh, we set it up as a conservative group, really simplicity reasons rather than uh, any uh, other reasons, but we're sharing everything that we uh, we do with uh, with people from other political parties. Am I right in thinking that the CRG was formed partly as a response to uh, China's handling of the coronavirus outbreak? And um, if so, what is the CRG's or your overall assessment of, of China's handling of this crisis? So first of all, no, it was uh, the discussions on the CRG actually started some six months ago. Some, you, you may be aware that the Foreign Affairs Committee that I'm privileged to chair is, uh, has been working on um, the nature of autocratic power and its influence in the UK for the last two years. And we've seen, for example, and we've reported on um, China's use of state power to silence debate in British universities and various other ways in which we're seeing influence coming from different dictatorships around the world uh, and having an impact uh, here in the UK. And so that's that's where this emerged from as an idea. And Neil O'Brien and I were discussing it a while ago. The coronavirus issue really triggered it into public consciousness and gave us an impetus to, to get on and do something that we've been talking about for a while. And I'm glad we did, because it's quite clear that there's a lot of work to do and a lot of information that we need to share. And, and, and so that's where, that's where we got to. As far as a, as far as a, a sort of a joint assessment, there, there, isn't a, there isn't a single view uh, amongst the CRG on this. We don't, we don't seek to have one. But I can give you my view. Uh, and my view is that China has really struggled with the openness required to help keep others safe. And this is something that has been a, a huge problem for not just the safety of Chinese citizens, who are, of course, the first people to have been to have fallen victim uh, to the deceit and dishonesty of the Chinese Communist Party, but actually to other countries around the world. And so what, in your view, was the impact of China's cover-ups and, and misinformation on our own response um, in, in Europe and, and more specifically in, in Britain? Well, let me be quite clear. I'm, I'm not going to seek to excuse failures in uh, Western countries, and the UK in particular, on the basis of what others may or may not have done. There are, there are, there are reasons, uh, and, and inquiries in the future will point them out, but there will be reasons to praise and reasons to condemn uh, our own governments for their own successes and their own failures. But it's certainly true to say that early reactions by the Chinese state in, for example, condemning Australia when they sought to lock down the country uh, against the threat of coronavirus and the condemnation they received from the WHO very much under very strong pressure from China led to many others to, to delay responses. And when, uh, despite knowing to the contrary that this was human-to-human transmission, uh, China maintained that this was only animal to human transition. That also put people at risk because, of course, had it been absolutely clear that it was human to human earlier, 
and many people would have taken different responses at different times. So, uh, Tom, I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. So my question would be, why, for example, did governments in Europe not react faster once China had confirmed, as you were saying, human to human transmission of the virus? So that happened, I think, around about uh, the January the 20th. Um, and three, day, three days later, it placed um, Wuhan uh, under a total lockdown, which was, by the way, severely criticized for doing. Uh, unlike the Italians. Um, why was Britain, uh, for example, uh, allowing uh, large public gatherings to take place, um, including marathons, uh, concerts, until the middle of March? Um, surely that wasn't because it was being misled by uh, information coming out of China. I mean, as I just said, the human-to-human transmission uh, was, was confirmed uh, late January. But, but even now, the transmissibility rates are very severely underestimated in China. Uh, it, you know, China is claiming that it's had some 4,000 dead. Um, private estimates multiply that figure by a hundredfold because it's the infection rate and the and the mortality rate still are massively underplayed in China, and that led to a lot of countries not responding uh, as stiffly as they should have done. And it's, you know, it's certainly true that there will be questions to answer, as I've already said, and, and there will be no doubt criticism of the UK and other countries uh, around the world for their, uh, for their responses too. I'm not excusing them, but the difference between the two is pretty simple. The UK's response has affected the UK, and this is an inquiry for the UK, therefore, to carry out. The same is true of the Italian response or the French response or the New Zealand response, which has been so successful. The difference with the Chinese response is it's, as it's the point of origin, their response and their subsequent deceit is what has actually put the rest of the world at risk. Don't you think that there's a risk that if we lay too much of the blame on China, that we might risk alienating both its government, but also uh, the Chinese population in general? Well, I think there's always a, there's always a danger that people confuse the government with the people, and certainly that's what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do: uh, is to conflate one with the other. You know, I and many others have been extremely clear that China's uh, extraordinarily courageous uh, scientists have called this out, as we know uh, from the uh, arrest, detention, and sadly later death of uh, Li Wenliang. Uh, in Wuhan, that the Chinese government has been seeking to silence their scientists now for many, many months. And we know from the expulsion and disappearance of journalists that this is sadly reaching very severe levels. So this isn't, this isn't really surprising in, 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 in many ways. We know that this is, this is going on. And what it's, uh, what's important for us is to make sure that we identify where the dangers are and what the cause, you know, what triggers danger for, for us here in the UK and indeed in Germany and elsewhere. Because if we can do that, uh, then we are trying to keep our people safe. You know, much as I sympathise with the Chinese people, I'm afraid there's not much we can do there. What we've got to do is we've got to focus on keeping the UK population safe. Now, the WHO, which um, has also been a major actor during this crisis, has recently been criticised by Trump as being China-centric. Would you agree with this? Well, I think the WHO has got a problem, and that's that it's, uh, it's been very dominated by its major uh, donors. This is, I'm afraid, the nature of all UN organisations, that major, major nations really do have uh, rather larger influence than uh, some people feel they should. In fact, I feel they should. Uh, and I certainly think that China has exerted more authority, more, more pressure over the WHO uh, 
than is healthy. In fact, the very fact that today at the World Health Assembly, uh, for a number of years now, Taiwan's observer status has not been renewed, which is effectively bowing to political pressure of the uh, Chinese nationalist doctrine of one uh, one nation, meaning uh, China uh, that Taiwan can't have an independent voice, even though uh, Taiwan is blatantly under a different public health regime uh, to China, is is really part of that example where we're we're bowing to pressure that we shouldn't bow to. There's a little known fact that the UK's total contribution to the WHO's budget is now nearly equal to the US's, so for the 2020 to 2021 period, and uh, nearly three times that of China's. Um, Why is it, do you think, that Britain doesn't have more weight within the WHO, if this is the case? This is, I mean, sorry, this goes into a rather larger question and a a separate one, which is how Britain leverages authority through international organisations. And, you know, the fact that we no longer have a judge on the International Court of Justice, the UN and uh, various other uh, different positions that we have surrendered in different ways over recent decades really addresses a question that for Western democracies, and the UK is merely one in this, um, is extremely concerning. Many Western democracies, whether the UK or or Germany or others, have ceased to fight for some of the seats on some of these UN bodies that we've really sought to ignore. But actually, we can't ignore them because they are the fora in which uh, discussion takes place. So if you look at, for example, the UN Human Rights Council and the fact that it's stuffed full of countries whose human rights records are disgraceful, shameful, is is really uh, is really pretty extraordinary, and the only reason that they they are able to do that is because we haven't been fighting for those seats, and this is this is something that I think needs to change in international uh, cooperation because it's it's absolutely fundamental to making sure the international rules based system to making sure international order uh, endures. I would now like to talk a little about Sino British relations, um, and uh, five years ago Britain was calling itself. Uh, China's best partner in the West and um, this was supposed to be the golden era of UK-China relations. During that time Britain secured billions of pounds worth of Chinese investments uh, including in strategic industries such as nuclear energy and the telecom sector and uh, Huawei was being courted quite openly by the then Chancellor George Osborne. Uh, But since then the mood seems to have been changing Um, but Boris Johnson still seems intent um, on allowing uh, Huawei to have a stake in the UK's 5G network. Tom, I know that you've been a long-term advocate of removing uh, Huawei from the UK market. Do you think that Boris Johnson and his cabinet might still backtrack on this? And do you feel that both Tory and Labour opinions vis-a-vis China um, in general have been changing in recent months. Many of us are surprised that now two different Conservative administrations have taken the same decision, and one that um, one that I, you know, one that I've rejected now for two and a half, three years. Um, and I hope very much that the Johnson administration will think again about this because I think it's I think it's a mistake. I think that um, the UK should be uh, seeking to maintain a leadership position in the international rules-based system. And that means, you know, having a proper voice 
in all aspects of it and slowly by various forms of uh, market manipulation and, and uh, state uh, support, companies like Huawei have um, achieved uh, much greater positions of influence than, uh, than, than their own technical capabilities would suggest normally possible. So I hope very much we will look at this again. Um, but this isn't about being you know, anti-Chinese. This is about making sure that we have a proper relationship with uh, companies that are going to uh, shape our lives. And so I don't think that there's any, I don't think there's any great surprise that I think that, you know, that Britain should be following in the, in the footsteps of countries like the Czech Republic and France and Australia, all of whom uh, have sought to defend their own uh, critical national infrastructure from a state that uh, has legislated that companies must cooperate with its intelligence services and whose intelligence services uh, are part of some of the world's most uh, draconian repressive uh, actions uh, ever. And so do you, do you feel that, um, that there has been a change of mood, um, both within the, the Tory party and the Labour party, uh, since this outbreak happened? Yes. In, in, in what way? In, in becoming more conscious of the risks that there may be in, in, in dealing with, with China? Yes, I think I think that what what COVID, what the coronavirus crisis has done, is it has brought home very clearly the reality of importing norms that are not those that a Western democratic country would be used to. So, you know, the levels of state control and silencing, the level of deception that is absolutely standard in a dictatorship, and therefore is no real surprise when we see it in the Corona crisis. Uh, in China is not something that we're used to seeing in the UK. Now, for many years, that didn't really matter because we were importing low-value goods or relatively low-value goods, and if they came or went, it didn't matter. But the dependency on China and therefore the dependency on a system that is so much more fragile than ours because of the level of um, deception embedded within it means that countries like the UK and Germany and France and others, are now directly influenced by value sets that are not our own. Now, that was already true, but it wasn't as starkly clear as it is now uh, until the coronavirus outbreak uh, hit us all. And, and how much do you think this will affect, this change of mood will affect um, Sino-British trade and investment relations, for example, um, in the next few years? I mean, for example, do you, do you still believe in a future Sino-British free trade agreement? Well, I would like to believe in one, but given that uh, China is not currently obeying the WTO rules that it signed up to nearly 20 years ago, and is one of the biggest uh, violators of international uh, rules, whether the UN law of the sea or uh, indeed uh, the intellectual property rules that it uh, seeks to set um, as a member of the World Intellectual Property Union, or indeed its attempts to rewrite the way that the internet works uh, through its chairmanship of the uh, International Telecoms Union, we can see very clearly that you know, there's no point in doing a deal based on rules with a country that doesn't obey any of the rules they've already signed up to. Would that mean... Uh possibly sanctions? Would that mean uh, a stronger screening mechanism? Um, I mean, I saw that the, um, both the MI5 and the MI6 um, had recently suggested that uh, the UK reassess its relations with China. I think that the, the general awareness that the UK uh, 
should have about um, the way that business in China affects uh, the way that life is lived in the UK is something that we should be increasingly conscious of. Uh, and I think that I don't think that's about sanctions. I think that's merely about uh, understanding what we're buying into. And actually, I mean, this is you know this is something that's likely to accelerate something that has already started, which is that uh, onshoring has become more of a thing as China has moved up the value chain in terms of goods. Uh, the reality is that uh, many of the many of the things that China got rich on making and now moving to other countries in terms of production and indeed great coders are not just found in Shenzhen or, or Bangalore but actually um, you can get some fantastically uh, you know talented coders at, uh, at uh, internationally uh, good prices in here in the UK. And, and do you think that Britain like other countries in Europe will be trying to uh, tighten controls on foreign takeovers um, in the next few months. Um, so, as I said, stronger screening mechanisms, basically to prevent uh, Chinese state-backed firms uh, from taking control of um, strategic uh, British companies, like, um, I think in the last couple of months, was it Imagination, uh, the semiconductor company? Right, so Imagination Technologies is one, but actually there are many other examples. I mean, the reality is we should have a, a, a geographically neutral law on foreign takeovers and we should look at each case uh, you know as it's uh, as it arises the australians have done a, a, a very good piece of work on this in the in the last few years and in fact the attorney general of australia who drafted the law you know did did some extremely impressive work in making sure that australia was in a better position than many uh, in terms of being able to protect itself against the threat of foreign takeover now you know china is the most obvious example today but uh, this is actually about um, making sure that assets upon which you rely are not ones that you find that you've uh, you've sold so we're hoping for a stronger screening mechanism well for a different screening mechanism it may not be you know it doesn't have to be used on every occasion it's it's just the ability to use it um so as i said at the beginning you voted uh, remain in the uk's 2016 eu referendum um, do you hope that during the upcoming Brexit negotiations, Britain would do better uh, to try and remain a part of the EU foreign policy and security structures? Um, and if not, um, how do you think post-Brexit Britain will fit in with the EU's and also the US's China policies? Um, do you think Britain will have to pick a side? So I think the I think the reality is that uh, the EU is is a club where you're either in or you're out. Uh, I don't think uh, it makes very much sense for a country like the UK to remain part of elements of it. But I think what we do need to do is we need to reach out very quickly to find ways in which we can work together. Now, actually, the US, sorry, the EU's foreign policy efforts have been extremely disjointed uh, over the last fifteen. 20 years anyway, there hasn't really been an effective EU foreign policy. There's been a Franco-German British foreign policy and others have either followed or not. So finding a new way to make that um, work is I think what we should be doing. And, and many of us are already doing a lot of work between Paris, Berlin and London, which others, you know, which as before, some follow and some don't. And so I think finding ways in which we can continue to work together is the challenge. Uh, there's no point in being part of a structure that you have no control over, which is why uh, I don't think we should be inside the EU. But I do think we should be looking to work with other European powers uh, on uh, areas that uh, you know, uh, we're supportive of. So this isn't about 
us falling into line, the UK falling into line with France and Germany. This is about France, Germany uh, and the UK maintaining the conversations uh, that have really been the, the basis of EU foreign policy uh, for the last 20, 30 years. And how would the US fit into all of this? Well, I think the US is an essential partner to uh, international cooperation. And we're, we're going through a, uh, a very unusual time in the US at the moment. Uh, and we'll have to see how things play out. But the, uh, the reality is that uh, the United States leadership in uh, amongst democracies around the world has always been uh, extremely important. And I look forward to, to, you know, I look forward to working with the US uh, as much again. And, you know, the US at the moment on China has been a very important leader as well. I mean, if, if you've listened to President Trump's China advisor, Matt Pottinger's uh, lecture on the uh, May the 4th, 20, uh, sorry, 1919 demonstrations in China, you'll see that uh, US uh, intellectual leadership uh, of the China debate is just as important today as it always has been. Tom Tugendhat, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for taking part in this podcast. Thanks very much. My name is Thomas Digaregedis, and this was Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.